right, well, let's get going. We're going to pick up where we left off. Guys, we are two weeks out from finishing this series. And today I want to get into um, a little bit of uh, picking up where we left off, kind of, but kind of taking a little bit of a turn because I want to just demonstrate what we've been talking about. If you recall what we've been talking about, it's coming out of Ephesians 6 here in the last couple of weeks. It says, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. You notice that word wiles. That means methods, methodos. How does the enemy come and attack? He comes through your mind. He, he, and that's literally what that Greek meaning is there, is that it is how he comes and attack. He comes in and makes you begin to question the reality that is around you. The things that we see, the things that we know. And it all comes back to what we saw in Genesis 3 was, did God really say? Is that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, when Eve is being tempted by Satan, by the serpent, she said, did God really say you can't eat of the fruit of that tree? And she went, well, yeah, he said that. And he said, don't touch it, which isn't what he said. And then, of course, the serpent comes back and says, no, he, he doesn't want you to do this because he knows it'll make you wise. You will be like God. Guys, we live in a world trying to be like God today. That they have made a God in their own image. And you know what that image looks like? It looks like a mirror. Because we worship ourselves. We bow down at our feet and tell ourselves how great we are. It's all gone back to this whole self-esteem nonsense. Like, why would I esteem myself highly when God says that I make the low, I raise them up? But in this world, it says, no, 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 you need to build yourself up. You need to build your platform. We teach our students today, you need to go to school and get good grades so that you can get a good education, so that you can get a good job. And what does that mean? It means money. It means power. We're teaching them early on to chase after those things. There's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing wrong with power. Both of those items are amoral. They're not immoral. They're not moral. It's what we do with them. But if we don't start them with the foundation of the godly principles, then we will abuse them when we have them. And so what we have here is the enemy coming against Eve and saying, did he really say that? And what does she do? She sees that the tree, it looks good. It's good for food. And it can make one wise. I want to be like God. That's really what the promise was. And so she ate of the fruit, and here we are. We have death. We have sickness. We have all these things that have been introduced as a result of sin. It's the opposite of what the world tells us, that, that, that death and sickness is the result of man, i.e. evolution. But but. The Bible says that man was the result of sickness and death because of sin. And so now we've got to get past that and understand how the enemy comes against us. He comes through our minds. And we see this. My brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. You know what he doesn't say? You need to read some Joel Osteen books because then you'll feel better about yourself. He doesn't say that. We rest our strength in him. When I am weak, he makes me strong. We've lost that because we don't know the word. I mean, we believe it. We're like, oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of believe that. But we always go back to the Bible and say, God, I know this is what you said, but let me tell you what you meant. You're going to see some of that today. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says, The weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. What are those things going against? It's one thing. It's the knowledge of God. All of them are going against the knowledge of God. And what do we take captive? Every thought. That tells us something. That this warfare that is going on is up here because we have an unredeemed mind. 
Yes, we can be born again. We can give our lives to Christ. We can be going to heaven and still have an unredeemed mind. That's why in Hebrews 4.12 it says this, For the word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, which means nothing to us. Because we don't fight with swords, right? We fight with bullets and missiles and bombs. And we stay home and push a button now, right? But back then, they had these swords. And they were sharp on both edges because when they swung them from either side, they could invoke damage. It says that it pierces even to the division of soul and spirit, to joints and marrow, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So what is this sword of the spirit? It is the word of God. It separates soul and spirit. That soulless realm is your mind, will, your emotions. It is your thoughts. Your spirit is full of the thoughts of God. It discerns through the nonsense. You see, if you believe wrong, then you will act wrong. If you're not convinced of what God says about you, then you will act as if God says nothing about you. If you believe something wrong about what God has said, who you are in Him, then you will act as such. If you continually tell your children that they're nothing but a bunch of brats, what are they going to act like? A bunch of brats. I'm still trying to figure out what the deal is with mine, but that's besides the point. But, but the thing is here is we've got to get past this stuff because if we're going to call ourselves a new man, the reason we call ourselves that is because God said it. Not because this is something that we're doing. You see, the church world today has become some religious practice and exercise. I go in, I put in my time on Sunday morning, I drop a few bucks into the offering, I do nice things, I bake cookies for my neighbors, whatever. I got baptized when I was a kid, all of this stuff thinking, okay, I must be going to heaven. That'd be great if that's how it worked. And all of those things are good, but that is not how it works. You see, we call ourselves a new man because we have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, we no longer live. It's in Him that we live. We are made the new man by His work. For by grace we have been saved through faith, not under works, unless we should be able to boast. You see, that's Ephesians 2. That's what God says, is that all we do is we receive that free gift, and we become this new man. Those are all things that are in the Word. The other thing that we have here that we've got to understand is that there is truth and there is half-truths and maybe quarter-truths and maybe eighth-truths. But the thing is, is that the enemy, when he comes in and begins to attack, he doesn't always just say a blatant lie. He mixes it with the little truth. Now think about back to Genesis 3. Did God really say this? And gets her questioning it. Think about in Matthew 4 where he went and tempted Jesus. What did he do in the second temptation? said, hey, jump off this building and have the angels catch you. For the word says, and he quotes two passages out of Psalm. This is the devil. He knows the Bible better than some of the Christians. But Jesus responds with the word because he knew that word of God, sharpened to an edged sword, able to discern between soul and spirit, the thoughts of man and the thoughts of God. You see, what happens in today's culture, especially here in America, but it is around the world, it's a worldwide phenomenon, is that we have lost the truth of Scripture and what it is. As I've said it before, and I'll say it again, I'll say it until I die, is that if we believe in something, and what we believe and what we claim as truth is not truth, then this is all for naught. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying that Jesus died, this is what he says of the gospel, Jesus died according to the Scripture, that he was buried and he was raised three days later according to the Scriptures. In other words, that the Word, that would be the Old Testament at this point, said that Jesus was going to die and he was going to be buried and three days later he was going to rise again. You know who else said that? Jesus himself. He told him, hey guys, this is what's going to happen. The apostles didn't believe him. And Paul later says, he said, listen, if the dead don't rise, then Jesus didn't rise. 
And if he didn't rise, you're still in your sins. In other words, what he's saying is if this event in history did not really happen, we're all wasting our time, right? Hey, it's great. We get together. We feel better about ourselves. But it doesn't matter because we're all going to die. doesn't matter. Dead don't rise. But prior to that, he gives evidence. He said first he was seen by the women, then by Cephas, then by over 500 at once, many of whom are still alive. His point being, if you don't believe me, Go ask any of them that saw him. They were eyewitnesses to this event. This is the event that changed the world. Is that Jesus rising from the dead. All based off of what? A promise in scripture. That the apostles didn't believe. So in today's world, we have a lot of things being said about the Bible without ever digging into the Bible. We have a lot of things that have some truth mixed into them. But we miss the crux of what is happening in the Word because we don't study Scripture. You know how it says, study to show yourself approved? It doesn't say, read your favorite Bible verse. It says, study. What does study entail? We dig in. We begin to understand the Word. We don't assume that we know what a while is. We begin to look into it and say, okay, what is this while, the wiles of the devil? It's not a word we use. We've got to dig into it. We've got to dig deeper. So today what I want to do is I'm going to read you a passage out of John chapter 8. It's a very famous passage. You hear it all the time. Then I'm going to show you a video clip of a pastor in Australia who is exegeting this passage. And I'm going to show you what he says on it. Now, I'm not trying to dog on this guy or anything like that, but I want to show you some things through that. And then I'm going to go back, and I'm going to show you how we break down this word. Because we need to understand how do we break down Scripture. If it is truth, we need to understand what it says. So let's look at this. John chapter 8, verse 1. It says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came up into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This, they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. This is the part I want to focus on. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. And when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Very famous passage. We hear it all the time. In fact, it's something that's even brought up culturally today, saying that we shouldn't judge. Jesus didn't judge. We'll talk about that in a minute. But I want you guys to watch this video, and I want you to watch what this pastor does with this piece of Scripture here. Okay? Y'all ready? Hit it.
So, is that what was going on? Did Jesus crouch down and start drawing in the sand? Did he draw a little kitty cat, maybe a butterfly, maybe a unicorn with himself riding on the back? I don't know. You see, what's happened here is he's taken a part of Scripture and has turned it into some moral lesson, taking time to relax. Because life is hard, and it throws things at us that we're unprepared for. And, and so what we need to do is we just need to, whoa, 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 let's relax, and let's get some time with the Father, and let's let him handle the situation. Is that a true statement? Because that's what he was getting at. It's a very true statement. But is that what's happening in this passage? And obviously, you know, the answer is no, or we wouldn't be talking about it, right? Because I'm setting you all up. This is what I do. You see, we can take those things and pull these moralistic stories. I mean, Janet this morning was talking about Daniel in the lion's den, right? And what's often said, first of all, it always gets talked about. You know, that's taught more in Sunday school with little kids than it is in church, like with adults. If you've seen Veggie Tales, Jim brought this up this morning. How did the angel distract the lions? He brought pizza. Right? I mean, it's cute. It's funny. You know some kid out there is thinking like, man, I want an angel that brings me pizza. I mean, I want an angel that brings me pizza for crying out loud. You know, but, but this is where we go with this stuff. And we talk about, we try to pull some moral attribute out of it and say, oh, yes, we just depend on God in the face of persecution. Y'all realize he's about to get eaten by a bunch of lions. Like, this is not some nice little situation. Jesus standing here, here's a woman whose life is on the line. She's getting ready to be stoned. Is that what the law called for? Absolutely. Were they within their rights? Sort of. They skipped a few steps, but that's besides the point. So that's what the church does today. You know what the world does, those who don't believe in the Bible? It amazes me. You don't believe in the Bible. You don't believe in God. It's God's word. You don't necessarily even believe in God, but you're going to use the Bible to make a case for something that you do believe. I've never understood that. Be that as way. I don't believe in communism, so I don't turn to Karl Marx to look for information on how to prove my case for non-communism, okay? So be that as it may. But they turn and say, well, you see, we shouldn't judge today. Only God judges. You see, Jesus didn't judge her. Did he or did he not say, woman, go and sin no more? In order to tell her to stop sinning, he had to judge that she was a sinner. This isn't saying don't judge. Did he judge her? Yes. We, we change the definition of these words around and say, oh, yeah, this is, this is judgment and all this stuff. That's nonsense. You make a million judgments a day. Some of you judge that I look funny wearing this jacket and crack some jokes. And I'm making a list, just so you know. Me and the big guy, we play racquetball every Thursday. I'm talking to him this week about it, so be prepared. There could be some diarrhea in your future, but whatever. Anyway, moving right along. You see, this is what happened. Is we just, because we don't know the word, we undervalue what's happening in the scripture. And we try to pull some story out of it. And if we just would be disciplined and go to the word and say, what is the word trying to compel us to get here? There's a reason that John picked this passage to write down, that he wrote this down, because at the end of the book of John, he says that, look, Jesus did way more than this stuff, and if I attempted to write down everything, there's not enough paper in this world to hold it. So why did he choose this story? Why is this here? What is he trying to get me to see? 
We have to go back in time and get it from the standpoint of what the author's intent was. Not what I think it means. What did it mean to him? Because he's the one that wrote it. What did it mean to his readers, whom he wrote it to? A first century Jewish person. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. This is what it's talking about. In verse 1 of chapter 7, we're going back. Okay? Because in order for me to show you how we do this and why we do it, we have to go back and do what? Catch the context. You see, that story is not isolated unto itself. It is a part of a larger passage. The chapters and verses were added later as just reference points. John did not write this. Oh, man, these first 11 verses of chapter 8 are going to be phenomenal. This is going to be sweet. No. He wrote a letter. His gospel, his, his eyewitness testimony of what he watched happen. So, here we got in this chapter 1, verse 7. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So we see what's happening here. First of all, Jesus is in Galilee. He didn't want to go to Judea. Why? Because the Jews, i.e. the Pharisees, the leaders, they were the political leaders of that day, were looking to kill him. Why? Because people were starting to believe he was the Messiah. And what happens if he is truly the Messiah? They lose their power. Because the Messiah has arrived. They don't like that. This whole religious system and political system can be corrupt, guys, even if it started well. But it says the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. That's a marker. What is the Feast of Tabernacles? Well, luckily for you, we've taught through this before, right? We spent about two and a half, three months going through the different, there are seven feasts. Let's put that slide up. There are seven feasts that the Jews celebrate, okay? There are three in the spring, see it there. There's one that's technically the summer, and then you've got the fall feast. So you've got Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Those are the three. They're celebrated one after the other. Um, we know that Jesus fulfilled these. He was our Passover lamb. His blood was shed un as unleavened bread. Unleavened has no leavening in it. Remember that leaven was always a symbol of sin. There was no sin in Jesus. And then, of course, he rose from the grave on first fruits. Now, I'm not going to get into all of that. You can go back and listen to those series. They're on iTunes. I went through in depth how all of that was fulfilled to the letter by Christ. And remember, he didn't have a lot of control in how and when he died and was buried. Just keep that in mind. Then, of course, Pentecost. What happened on Pentecost? The falling of the Holy Spirit came upon the church, Acts chapter 2. Right? We know that. Now, here we come over here to the fall feast. We've got trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and tabernacles. These are the ones that Jesus will fulfill when he returns. All right? Now, again, not getting in all of that, but we are focused right here on tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's got a couple of different names. It's called the Feast of Booths. It's called Sukkot. It's always the 15th day of the seventh month of Tishri, which is the Jewish calendar. Remember, they have two calendars. They have a civil calendar and a religious calendar. It happened during the time of the Exodus. So it is celebrating Israel's years in the wilderness and how they lived in these temporary booths. You see, today, if we are going to go live out in the woods somewhere, what do we do? We go and we go down to the camping store, we buy a tent, and we get a, a portable satellite TV and a good generator, and we go and we live like hobos, but that really well-off hobos, you know, but that's not what happened. They have fled Egypt, they're running through the wilderness, and so because they did not believe the promises of God and they sinned, they didn't get to enter in the promised land, so for 40 years, they traveled around in these booths, and so they... Um, 
this is a celebration of that time that they remember. It's seven days long. Technically, you could probably go eight days. But just before dawn each day, these priests would come through the temple and they would perform these daily rites around these feasts all the time. Um, but there were three main things. They would proceed to the east gate. That's important. I would leave out of the temple area. The sun appeared and turned away the face of the west. They would go toward the temple. And they'd announce as they were leaving, our fathers, when they were in this place, turned their faces towards the east and they worshiped the sun towards the east. But as for us, our eyes are turned toward the Lord. This is the first one. Okay? There's three things that they do. The second one is was performed at night and they would put these four huge menorahs and I'll show you those later and they were set up they would illuminate the entire temple area and it was made of like old priestly garments and things for the wicks and the oil and they, they would use and stuff like that and they would recite um, Psalms 120 through 134 it was this huge procession think of the craziest parade you ever saw because if there's anything that the Jews know how to do, they know how to party, right? There's instruments. I mean, they are going crazy. This is a good time. And what would happen is these four giant menorahs, over 70 feet tall, they're huge, um, would light up the entire temple. Remember, they would have these mikvahs. They would bathe in these things. But also, as part of tabernacles, they would ha all able-bodied male Jews had to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate it. The other ones were Passover and... Uh, Day of Atonement, right? No. Trumpets. Pentecost, that's what it was. You're right. Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And so it would light up the entire area, and it didn't matter what direction you were walking in, you would see these at night from miles away because there was so much light coming off of them. That's important. Keep that in mind. Don't lose sight of that fact. So this is what's going on here because we know that it is during the Feast of Tabernacles. So I'm giving you a picture of what is taking place here. This is the context. Now, let's pick this up in verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples may see that the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe him. What brothers is he talking about? His physical brothers. The offspring of Mary. James is one of them. The book of James, Jacob is actually his name. He was the guy that was over Jerusalem later on. Did not believe in him until after the resurrection. His own brother. So they're kind of mocking him. Like, hey, if you're who you say you are, why don't you head to Jerusalem? Verse 6, And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You hear how judgmental Jesus is being there. He just told the world their works are evil. How dare he? You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And when he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. Now, this is a big deal, because the law was that every Jewish male went to Jerusalem. And here Jesus is saying, yeah, I'm not going yet. You guys go ahead without me. I'll get there when I get there. Okay? This is important. Now, he eventually goes. Verse 10. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Okay? So did Jesus lie before? That's a question I've been asked. He said that, hey, you guys go ahead. I am not yet going up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Did he lie to them? No. He said, I'm leaving later. Okay? No confusion. Then the Jews sought him at the feast. Now, the Jews, again, we're talking about the leaders, the Pharisees, all of these guys, because they want him gone. And they said, where is he? Because who do they go to? His brothers. Who should know where he is? They went as a family. That's typically how it went. They travel as a family. 
And there was such complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. These guys that believed that he was something would not open their mouths because they knew what would happen. That these Pharisees, these, these, these Sadducees, all these leaders were going to get a hold of him. And they may kill him. They could do something else. So they were not willing to go up. All right? So that's where we're at. Jesus just gets there. They're looking for Jesus. He's there secretly. Maybe he's wearing a costume. I don't know. Verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. Let's stop there for a moment. So where are we at? Remember I told you this feast is seven days. On the eighth day, something else happened. Seven days long. We are now in the middle. It's giving us a marker point, right? In the middle of this feast, he goes to where? The temple. Let me show you what this temple looks like. Go ahead. There should be a picture of the temple. There we go. This is Herod's temple. It's rebuilt. It was not completed at this point. You had um, the temple of Zerubbabel. First of all, remember who built the first temple? It was Solomon. Then after the exile, Zerubbabel went back, but they never really liked it. It wasn't nice enough. It didn't have all the pretty stuff in it. And so Herod, who was not Jewish, began to build this temple because he liked himself. And so this is what it eventually is going to look like. Get done until about 62 to 64 AD. And remember that the Romans destroyed it in 70, and Jesus said that was going to happen. So, in the temple, you've got the gate to which you get into the temple area, and here is the eastern gate. You've got the court of the Gentiles. They could come in here, but they could not go into there. Why? They were not in covenant with God, they were not the people of God. They were considered outsiders. In here is in the temple, it's called the women's court. And that is where most of this activity is taking place. The reason we know that is because only the priest could go inside. The priest had the right, and only the high priest could go into the innermost part, called the Holy of Holies, one day of year on the Day of Atonement. And that had already taken place because it happens before the Feast of Tabernacles. So you guys with me so far? We know what the temple looks like. We know what's going on. We also know who he's talking to, right? Jesus goes into the next verse. And the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters, having never studied? Why do they make that statement? Because that's all these guys did. When he says letters, he's talking about the scriptures. Because they are letters. They are letters that were written by men to either somebody or groups of people. And so they're saying, now how? He's never gone to school. He never sat there and learned all the stuff. He didn't go to seminary. Those didn't exist back then. You see, they're saying, hi, how can he know any of this stuff? He doesn't know anything because he's never learned. Only we know. Just trust us. We'll tell you what it means. That's what they're getting at. Here we go. Jesus answered to them, verse 16. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Who sent him? The Father. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Man, that's a big statement. And he says, why do you seek to kill me? Why? These are the guys who interpret the law, to tell everybody else how to live it. And here is Jesus, who is actually the author of it, telling them, you guys don't even keep it yourself. Why are you coming after me? This is a slap in the face of the Pharisees. In other words, they're not real happy with him right now. The people answered, and, and why wouldn't you? You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
if not a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Look, Jesus just told us to judge again. It's all over the place. So what did he do? He healed a guy on the Sabbath. Remember, they came after him. Nope, you can't do any work. Now remember, the Sabbath laws. Now, there are these things called fence laws. So the Sabbath was to be set apart and kept holy. That was part of the Mosaic Covenant. That was the sign of it. And then, to make sure that they didn't break it again, after the, uh, when they came back from being expelled and all that, they set up these fence laws to keep you as far away from breaking the actual law as possible so they don't have to go into exile one more time. And so, by doing nothing on the Sabbath, like, you couldn't make food on the Sabbath. You couldn't walk, you could walk, what is a hundred and some steps? Like, it's all it was. If you go to Jerusalem today, on the Sabbath, the elevators go to, they stop on every floor because it is work to push the button. I'm not kidding. So these are, they have Jewish elevators and Gentile elevators. And if a Jew sees a Gentile getting on that elevator, they go over there and say, oh, would you push floor 18 for me? Because can you imagine riding every floor? Now, I know I'm surely not the only one that's ever gotten off an elevator and then pushed every button before they left. Am I alone? Okay. It was last week. No, I'm just kidding. I was young. I didn't know any better. So he says, don't judge according to appearance, but judge with a righteous judgment. Verse 25. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. You know why? Because they have no response. Oh, you have a demon. That's the best they can come up with. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? Stop. What is happening? Jesus is revealing himself as the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. This is the one that they were waiting for. And they're starting to say, like, well, wait a minute. They're not stopping him from speaking. They're, 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 they're not, just, do they know that this is him? Is this he that we've been waiting for? However, we know where this man is from. And when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Is that true? No, it's not. It says that he would come from Bethlehem. So they would know where he's from. Here's people that don't know the word. They're confused. They're trying to figure this out. Verse 28, Jesus cried out and he taught in the temple saying, You both know me and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him and he sent me. Therefore, they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him. There's the key. What happens when we believe in him? We shall be saved, right? They are now believing that he is the Messiah. They've still got questions. When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? I mean, he's done a lot of signs. Remember, what signs are they talking about? There were four messianic miracles. We've talked about that. I don't have time to go into all of that. But at chapter 9, you actually see him perform one in healing the blind man, which is immediately preceding what we're talking about today. So verse 32, you got people believing in him. The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. What things? Maybe this is the Messiah. So now they're getting worried. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. And then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? They're asking all sorts of questions, like, what does he mean by that? And I want to know, was he going to the way of the dispersion? He's going there. So what is that? I think I've got a map. Do I got a map back there? I don't have a map. That's good. I didn't want one anyway. 
The dispersion was, is after they left Babylon, they spread out. They didn't all go back to Jerusalem. Some of them stayed in Babylon, but they spread out. They dispersed from where they were under the Babylonian captivity in the 500s B.C., and they had been there for a long time. Now, Jerusalem was the home. It was the center of, of Judaism, of the faith, the religion. And remember, it is also a nationality. And so they would go there because they had to go there to worship. But they were spread out all over the place. Is that what God wanted them to do? No. He gave them a land of which they were to be in and dwell in, but they have chosen not to. So they're asking, okay, is he taking off from the land of which God has given us, going to where all the other Jews are? That's what they're asking. So, verse 37. On the last day... The great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, here's another marker. On the last day, the great day of the feast. Do we know what that means? Janet does. Some of you do. But it means nothing to us. You know why? Because we're Americans. And we don't know what this means. Like, what's going on here? You had the first day we saw. We saw the middle of the road. Now we're seeing the last day. That's a marker. That's important. But here's the verse that we hear all the time. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? What's he talking about here? In order to understand this, we have to understand what is happening in this moment. The first and the last days were special. In this feast, they were to be set apart from all the others. So that means they did things differently here. In First Chronicles chapter seven, verse one, I'm going to read you this: When Solomon had finished praying, so they're dedicating the temple. They just built the temple. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. Bet you didn't know we were reading this today, did you? There you go. You see, what happens is their Hanukkah, Hanukkah-ing, I'm making that up, the temple, they're dedicating it. That's what Hanukkah means. They're dedicating the temple. And they perform the rites and these offerings, and God, the fire of the God, comes down, consumes the offering, and it says that the glory of the Lord filled the temple that nobody could go in. It was a powerful moment. Later, we see that the glory of the Lord leaves the temple, it exits out, it goes to the Mount of Olives, and it goes away. And every year, on the last day of the feast, they are waiting for the glory of the Lord to come back into the temple. For what is the glory of the Lord? It is God himself. He stayed in that holy of holies, seated on his throne. Now, what's happening here? Think about the picture that's being played out. Is Jesus, who is the glory of the Lord, is standing in this temple on the last and great day of the feast. He's there. You've got to be Jewish to get some of this stuff, I understand. You see, the analogy that I often use is that if I was telling somebody who was not an American and not familiar with our culture that, hey, you know, I went to a football game the other day and then they played the national anthem and then, you know, they yelled play ball and we started. I think I'm mixing some baseball in there and whatever. They flipped the coin, whatever you want. Okay? We Nebraska folk, we struggle. Okay? So, but when you hear that, you know what happens, right? When we hear the national anthem, what do we do? We stand up, we take off our hats, 
We put our hands over our heart. If you're a military person, you may salute. We sing the song, at which time then we sit down. Now, in today's culture, we kneel, but whatever. We know that, but if I just make that statement, they won't know anything about it, right? They won't have any clue. We just said the national anthem. That's what's happening here. This last and great day of the feast is that the glory of the Lord is once again in this temple. They have been waiting for years. From the moment that it left, as they thought every year, this is when it's going to happen, because it happened in Solomon's time on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the timing. So Jesus is fulfilling this. See, the one thing we need to understand is Jesus was a rabbi. They call him rabbi. He was a teacher. And rabbis would do something called a remez. You see this in the Bible. It's a, it's a Hebrew word. And it, it's, a, it's a word that kind of means dig here. And so these teachers, like, if I came to you and, and, and my son says, what is two plus two? And I say four, I've given him the answer. But if I show him how we're going to work that problem out, now it means more to him because he's going to come to that understanding on his own. That is a remez. That is what Jesus does. He's laying these breadcrumbs all the time so that the people there can pick up on what's happening. But that's just the beginning part of it. There's more to this. Look at this again. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture was said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We know that's about the Holy Spirit. Now, why did he say that? Why did he say, out of the blue, he's standing in the temple, last day of the feast. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Is he being literal here? He's like, anybody thirsty? I've got a soda. I'll share it. If he can take loaves and fishes and multiply them, I think he can get them water. Why is he making this statement? Well, this is again coming back to the customs in context. Another part of the ceremony was the water libation ceremony. It was a visual prayer that the, the priest would do, the high priest, for rain. Because remember, these are all around the harvest times. That's what these feasts were for. And so they would depend on the fall rains for the harvest to be ready. Rain is a symbol of life. And what would happen is the high priest would exit the temple, and he'd have all these people following him. And he would go to the Pool of Siloam. Remember what happened at the Pool of Siloam? Jesus is healing, right? He would go to the Pool of Siloam, and he would have these two pitchers. And some say that he filled both with water. Some say it was one with water, one with wine. Either way, it doesn't matter. Then, and the reason he did that, I didn't say this, is that the Pool of Siloam was living water. What is living water? It's water that moves. It's rains, it's springs, or it's rivers. Couldn't be stagnant water. Your pool at your house is not living water. Right? If you have a hot tub, it's not living water. Your bathtub could be considered living water because you have water that is moving. You see, so that's what they considered. The pool of Siloam was spring-fed. So that's why this counted. It had to be living water. Their mikvah pools where they would cleanse themselves and they would bathe and all this other stuff had to be living water. And they would even count it because not all of them were spring-fed or river-fed, but if one drop of rain touched that stagnant water, they now considered it living water. They did. I don't know that God did, but they did. And so he would dip these two pitchers either in the water or one with water and one with wine, and they would go back up. And this is the third part of that ritual that I was telling you about. It's the first of the morning, they head out, they get these things, and then the shofar was blown. And all the pilgrims, the people that were coming from Jerusalem were coming back, they would wave these things in the air. It's this huge celebration. They're all excited. And they would carry, the priests would carry the waters around the altar. And the great halal, which is Psalm 113 to 118, they would recite this as a prayer. And then the priests uh, that were on duty, they would pour all the water onto the altar. 
and in a prayer to God to bring rain. He's pouring living water. In this moment on that last day, what did Jesus say? If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. This is the climax of the feast. Jesus is making a claim here. Who is the source of living water? God. Who did Jesus just say, if you want living water, where do you go? To him. We have the glory of the Lord in the temple. And he is claiming to be God. This is a Ramez, right? He's putting these little hints out. He didn't just get up on the temple and say, hey, y'all, I'm the Messiah. You've been waiting. I made it. Isn't that good? You see, as they would pour that water on, they would yell, Hoshana Rabbah, which is translated to save now. This is what Jesus, he walks in on that moment, and he says that as that priest is pouring on there. How do we know that? Because that's how they did it. It doesn't say that, but we know the context. Well, let's jump to verse 40. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly, this is the prophet's other, this is the Christ. But some said, well, the Christ come out of Galilee. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem from David was, was from? So there was a division among the people. But some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Why? They're all saying like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He just claimed something. But then they're like confused. Wait a minute. He's from Galilee. The Messiah has to be from the seed of David, has to be born in Bethlehem. Why do you think the Gospels record that? Because Scripture said it. You see, they thought he was from Galilee because that's where he was from. But he wasn't born there. I mean, if you guys want to get technical, I was born in Detroit. I have street cred. I grew up in the rough park. Actually, I left when I was one. But, you know, that was where he's from, thus fulfilling it. So they're like, this is him. Did you ever wonder why he makes that one statement all of a sudden, aha, this must be him? Now you know. Now you know what's happening. Let's look at the next part, verse 45. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why have you not brought him? The officers answered, no man ever spoke like this man. What did he say that was so profound? He claimed to be the Messiah. Then the Pharisees said to them, are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is a curse. And he said, hey, you can't believe in him because we don't believe in him. They don't know the law. We know the law. You need to trust what we're saying. Don't believe what you've heard. Don't believe what the scriptures tell you. Believe us what we tell you that it says. Remember how we talked about, God, I know this is what you said. But let me tell you what you meant. That's what's happening right here. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who came to Jesus by night, be, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? This is the second time we see his name. The first time is in John chapter 3. He's a leader of this group of Pharisees who was trying to wipe Jesus out, comes to Jesus by night because he's afraid of them, saying like, What do I have to do to be born again? Jesus says, Well, you've got to be born of spirit. And of water, which is water is natural birth. That is not talking about baptism there. And his response is, well, how do I get back into my mother's womb? I don't think she's going to go for it. And Jesus says, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? In other words, this should be so clear. And here's Nicodemus is like, no, wait a minute. Our law doesn't judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing. In other words, let's give him a chance to plead his case. And they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. In other words, they look down on the Galileans. Think to Acts chapter 2, when they're praying in tongues, and they're like, wait a minute, we hear them speaking all these languages. Aren't these Galileans? They're the country bumpkins. They don't know nothing. Nothing good comes from Galilee. 
and everyone went to his own house. You see, this is what's happening. They're saying, now listen, no, this isn't it. This can't be him. You must be standing up for him because you too are from Galilee. I mean, that was an insult. What is it around here? Like, you from Tarkio? I don't know. Is that a thing? I'm just asking. I don't know. Okay, I'm not from here. How about this one? This is one you all can read. You from Nebraska? Is that better? Okay. Now, let's jump. This is all that's happened. What are we in? The end of the Feast of Tabernacles. We watched Jesus claim to be the Messiah. Now let's go to chapter 8 and read this again. Verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Where is the Mount of Olives? Tell me I have this picture up. Do I have a picture up? I got nothing. Okay. I got to do a better job here. The Mount of Olives is just east. It's just over the hill. You go through the Kidron Valley, you're just right there. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now, early in the morning, next day, he came in again into the temple. So where is he? Back where it all started. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought him a woman caught in adultery, and they said he had set her, caught her in the midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman is caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Stop there. Are they right in what they're doing? Partially. I said that earlier. What's the part they're leaving out? Where's the man? Caught in the act. Didn't bring him. They weren't interested in that. Why? Because they were trying to catch him. So, Moses and the law commanded that such be stone. What do you say? They want him to contradict it. They're testing him. They might have something of which to accuse him of, which we know because of this, they have nothing. They're desperate. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. What was he writing? That's the question we're trying to answer. What was he writing? So when they continued to ask him, he raised himself up and said, He was without sin among you. Let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. Now stop. What did he say that convicted them of their sin? They don't care what he says. They don't respect him. This is the Pharisees. These are the ones that are telling Nicodemus, are you a Galilean too? Like, what did he say and do? He's writing in the dirt. Apparently, he's drawing kitty cats and butterflies and whatever else. And he stands up and says, okay, you don't have any sin. You go ahead and cast the first stone, which is not what the law of Moses says. Because the Pharisees were the ones, the leaders of the Jewish community were the ones who were supposed to enact corporal punishment. And then he scoops back down. He starts writing again. And after that, he says nothing else that's recorded, at least. They were convicted of their sins, and one by one, they left. Have you ever wondered what on earth he said that convicted them? We respect the words of Jesus, right? If Jesus said something to us and it convicts us, we will repent and we will turn from it. That's not these guys. So what is going on? Well, let's look at this. We know that they're in the temple, right? But where are they? Well, they have to be in that outer court, the women's court. That's where they have to be because that is the place where everybody would gather. When was it? It was the day after that whole event we talked about where Jesus is claiming in the temple to be the Messiah. His statement of cast the first stone is a focus on personal sin, right? Yeah, she's got sin. So do you. We should all deal with that. But why? We see the day before, he, he says, I'm the living water. And the Pharisees in that moment rejected him, right? They rejected him. He's like, no, you're not the living water. He made the claim that he was God and that they rejected it. So what was he writing in the sand? I can tell you exactly what it was. He was writing the names 
of those who rejected him. How do I know that? I wasn't there. Turn to Jeremiah 17, verse 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. What did they do the day before? They forsook him. He kneels down. He knows this verse, guys. These are the teachers of the law. They knew what Jeremiah wrote. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. The day before, he said, I am the living waters, and they rejected him. And so when he stepped down, started writing their names on the earth, that meant something to them. They recognized what was happening, and they immediately turned and they fled. They didn't repent. They turned and they fled. You see how powerful that is? Here's the problem. That video I showed you, the guy was claiming special revelation, that God revealed this to him. Can God give us special revelation? Absolutely. He can reveal stuff to us. He can tell us stuff. He can do all that kind of stuff. But if it doesn't line up with Scripture, we'll throw it out. He's a good guy. He's not an enemy. We're all on the same team. But we've got to properly exegete Scripture. We've got to take this seriously. Because we're going to come up with all these wild accusations. There was nothing he said that wasn't true in the sense of what he took away from it. His takeaway was right. We do need to take time and relax and rely on God. Those are all true statements. But we've got to know what the Word says. It's right there. How many of you guys have ever seen that before? Me neither. It was years. Years I went by. I'm like, this makes no sense to me. And then one day, that last and great day of the feast caught my attention. That's how the Lord reveals things. But I'm not done. Let me show you this one. Let's go to that next verse. Verse 12. Because then he makes another weird statement. Then Jesus spoke to them, again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay? We hear that verse quoted all the time. What are we talking about? Well, let's go back. Where are we at? We're in the temple. Okay? We're the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. We're in the women's court. If you remember, I think I have this picture. Okay, go ahead. The four menorahs. You want to take a guess in the dark of what they were called? The light of the world. Because it drew people to the place of which God was. He's standing right there. They're still up. They didn't have the construction crew come in that night and take them down. He looks up at those. He points at them and says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. All of this makes sense when you understand the context. This, guys, is how we execute Scripture. This is how we go to the Word. We don't pull stuff out of context. We don't try to make up our own me, even if it sounds good and it feels good. Like, I loved everything about that service. Did you guys see the lights? I loved lights. And the fog? I love fog. But all of that is nothing if we can't parse Scripture. You see, the case that was being made here is that Jesus was who he said he was. He was revealing himself as the Messiah. And in doing so, the Jews were seeing it. He was giving them an opportunity. If they don't reject him, we're not having this discussion. 
2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about the words to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers, but be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what we need to do, guys. All of this stuff the last few weeks is all leading to this point. We need to know what God says. We need to know what God meant. We need to know how He wants us to take away from different things. We can't put our spin on it. If you know the words, which is the foundation, we saw in Matthew 7, where it's the foundation of stone and the foundation of sand, I don't care what comes against you, you will not be knocked down. The situation was the same in that analogy. It was the same rain, the same wind, the same floods. But the foundation was the key. If our foundation isn't the word, then our foundation is wrong. There's one thing that separates soul and spirit and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of our heart, and that is the Word of God. We have to stay with that. 